Warning, this podcast features graphic content that may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Hello again, Nightmare Society, and welcome to another episode of True Horror Stories. I want to congratulate our winners of our recent giveaway, Whitney C, Trinity G, and Trinity W. Apparently, it was a good week to be a Trinity. There must be a glitch in the matrix. Anyway, if you're just now hearing of this giveaway, it's probably because you don't follow us anywhere. Make sure you do that at Nightmare Society Radio. I'd like to thank and welcome our newest members of the online campfire. I love you, Jonah and Micah, Nick F., Whitney, Letitia A., and Brooklyn K. Welcome, everyone. So very glad to have you. And thank you so much for showing your love and support for the podcast. Every single pledge helps us work towards making the podcast better. Some of you may have noticed this year I've extended the typical episode length to a minimum of 30 minutes, as I've had a lot of requests for longer episodes, so I've been working on that, and I'm also working on compiling strings of episodes together for longer, uninterrupted versions that you can find on YouTube, or if you're a Patreon member, all of our memberships have access to these compilations via a podcast audio feed. Let's also give a big thanks to our contributors, user IVLEAN, user Bondage Santa, user 29 Grapes, user The Faceless Writer, and user Synox. A theme emerged this week, accidentally. I searched for stories in my files using keywords, and I don't always read them fully before putting them all together until I'm actually recording, so... There's a little bit of everything in here. Stalking, reference to domestic abuse, um, animal abuse, etc. Those mostly being the last two stories. Um, I'm going to mention in the show notes exactly where you can uh, skip ahead to avoid some of the details, but still be able to enjoy the story. One final note, Nightmare Society is a weekly podcast. It comes out every Thursday It's available on most pod streamers, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Podbean, Pocket Cast, CastBox, and more. So don't forget to follow or subscribe so you can get episode notifications. And uh, don't forget to follow us on YouTube. We would really appreciate that. Now, get comfy and prepare yourself for another episode of The Nightmare Society. So I decided to use a Starbucks gift card I got for Christmas this one morning before class. I live in a college town and I wanted to go to the Starbucks closest to campus so I wasn't late to class. This one does not have a drive through window so I had to walk in. 
When I walked up to the front door, a man and a woman were sitting at the outdoor table, and they both made eye contact with me. I remember thinking it was kind of odd, because they looked me up and down. Plus, it's like 30 degrees, and there were clearly open chairs inside. Come to think of it, they didn't have drinks or anything. I walked inside and ordered my drink like normal, but I could still feel them staring at me through the front window. Once I got my drink, I started to walk out to my car, passing the two people. I heard both of them stand up and start walking behind me without saying a word. I got really scared and put my car keys in between my knuckles, just in case I needed to protect myself. I sped up and got into my car as fast as I could and locked all the doors. Not even two seconds later, the woman knocked aggressively on my driver's side window, essentially making me damn near piss myself. The man was right next to her with a straight face, hands in his pockets, looking through the windows of my car as if he were searching for something he wanted. I cracked the window like a centimeter so she couldn't fit her hand in or anything and asked her if she needed anything and she told me to roll the window down more. I just said it was really cold so I'm going to keep it up. She then asked me if I could give them some money and she seemed like she was insisting, not so much asking. I just stumbled over my words and told her that I paid with a gift card and that I'm a poor college kid who didn't have any cash, which was true but it sounded like an excuse. The man started to look confused and angry at me and he yelled at me to get out of the car. Get out of the car! Get out of the car! That's when I just noped the F out and drove away as fast as I could. I'm glad I got out of there but they scared the crap out of me. I probably shouldn't have even talked to them at all, so... Uh, to the two people who I think tried to rob me at Starbucks. Let's not meet again. This happened back in August 11 of 2018. My fiancé and I were on the second night of our two-night camping trip at a popular campground about half an hour from where we live. For reference, my fiancé is black. We live in a predominantly white, conservative, and racist area. This is important later. On our first night, we kept hearing noises in the woods around us the campsite right beside ours to the right was occupied, but the one to the left was not. The campsites are about 150 yards apart, and we had camped here in the same exact plot the year before. Needless to say, we were familiar with the area and the various kinds of animals that live in the woods. The first night, we heard shuffling around our tent. It was obviously something large moving around. We brushed it off and assumed it was just a deer. Now, back to the main event. On August 11th, we spent the day at the battlefields a town over with my family. They had all been invited to join us for the day by my fiancé as a surprise for me while he proposed to me. We stayed with my family into the evening, 
about 6 p.m. before heading back to our campsite. When we got back, things were really odd. Someone had obviously been in our tent. Our blankets were thrown around, clothes were on the floor, and my backpack had been rearranged and I was missing underwear. But hey, we were stupid 19-year-olds and decided that since whoever had busted in had left and hadn't taken anything important, it was fine and they wouldn't come back. So we set up a campfire and sat out until it was dark, roasting hot dogs and s'mores, smoking cigarettes and celebrating our engagement. Around 9.30pm we put our fire out and decided to go into our tent for the night to celebrate a little more. Nothing too loud or obnoxious, but immediately after we started to hear noises outside our tent again, but this time we focused in. We heard clear footsteps and at one point a man whispering. We looked at each other and our eyes got wide. Someone was definitely walking around outside our tent. We were still and completely silent, just listening to the footsteps, and then we heard whispering again. Crap. Make that two men walking around our tent. As if we had the ability to read minds, my fiancé said, I have to go to the bathroom. And I agreed. The bathroom was up the hill from our site. Most people who were in lower sites like ours drove their cars up to the bathroom. Now here's the part I still get chills thinking about. We got up and were getting dressed. My fiancé had just turned on the light in our tent and put his binder on when a man spoke directly to us from right outside the tent. What are you doing? I can't even describe how malicious and menacing this voice sounded. It was clearly directed at us and he said it with a snicker. He was watching us through the walls of the tent. Again, for this part, we were stupid 19-year-olds, so we decided just to run for it to the car. My fiancé grabbed his pocket knife and his keys and stepped out of the tent. He pulled me with him, and we ran like hell to the car. I heard the footsteps running behind us and then turning and running up another campsite. At the bathroom, we talked over our options. We talked about sleeping in the car or driving into the town. Then we had another idea. We drove back down to our campsite and began packing everything into the car. At this point, it was around midnight. We moved faster than I think either of us thought possible, wrapping up the tent with our belongings still in it and grabbing our folding chairs. We were all packed in five minutes and hopped into the car to leave. I jumped out at the end of the drive and grabbed our nameplate, which had my full name on it, off the post. As we pulled out of our campsite, I saw our assailants for the first time, stalking through the woods onto our campsite, were two tall white men. I remember that these were the same men who had been driving past our campsite the whole time we were there, just glaring at us and muttering to each other. One was wearing camo hunting gear, and the other was wearing a confederate flag tank top. Both were carrying large hunting knives, unsheathed and at the ready. They turned when they saw our car driving away, and one started to make chase until the other stopped him. I made eye contact with the man in camo, 
and he smiled the most terrifyingly evil smile at me and shook his head slowly. We drove the long way home, taking all the weirdest, hardest to follow roads, and called my dad so he would know we were coming. When we got home, we told my dad everything, and he shrugged it off as us being paranoid. So I never told anyone else besides all of you now. I'm convinced to this day that this was going to be a racially motivated attack. The campground was not heavily populated and my fiancé was the only non-white person at any of the campsites. It was no accident that the two men who had been shadowing us since our arrival and wore confederate flags and had one on their truck decided to target the interracial couple. I still get cold chills when I think about how close we were to being killed, or seriously hurt, and just how lucky we were that our reckless plan to just make a run for it worked. So, to those men who stalked our campsite with the hunting knives, let's not meet. This happened way back in 2010, but I remember it like it was yesterday. I was in the army and stationed in North Carolina. I had recently gotten home from a deployment in Afghanistan, and my ex-husband and I had bought a house in a really cute little neighborhood. It was positioned at the back of a cul-de-sac, facing the main road that went through the neighborhood. Shortly after moving in, my ex received orders to deploy to Kuwait. When he left, so did my best friend's husband, so she moved in with me that way we wouldn't be alone. A few months after, I was sent to Florida to do some training on our unit's equipment. That's when it all started. My friend called me one day and she was frantic. She said she went to the back door to let our dogs out, and there was a man just standing there in the backyard looking at her. They both were just frozen for a few seconds. She said he then turned and jumped over the little fence and ran off. She said he was wearing a big black hoodie, which struck me as super weird because it was the middle of August. I tell her to call the police immediately and set the home security system to stay. That way if any door is opened or the windows are messed with, the alarm will go off. She does. The next day she calls me again, frantic. She said the bird bath in the backyard is now in the front yard next to the driveway. That bird bath weighs at least 200 pounds. There's no way one person moved that. And also, when did they do this? My friend didn't work and she was home all day. In Florida, my team and I go to a movie to relax from a week of being outside for 14 hours in the sun in the middle of the swamplands of Florida. After the movie, we go back to our hotel. I check my phone that had been dead for like half the day, and I have ten missed calls from my friend, and a missed call and voicemail from my home security system. I call the number to my voicemail and listen to the woman on the message saying there's been a break-in at my house, and that they've sent the police. Next, I hear a voicemail from my friend, she said the same thing, 
and that she was staying on base with her boyfriend and wasn't home. I literally cannot do a thing because I'm in Florida, but I must have listened to those messages pretty shortly after this happened because I called 911 and connected to the police department in my town in North Carolina, and the dispatcher said the police were at my house right now. I get the number for the guy in charge at my house, and he says they cannot go in until I get there. I explain the situation and give them permission to enter my home. They can't, he says, but they'll have dogs search the perimeter after they figure out if the robbers are still inside. Once they figure out there's no one still in my house, they have dogs track a scent from my house to the empty house next to mine. The scent trail then goes down the street and then disappears. They say the robbers probably got into a vehicle and left. Thankfully, the robbers had way too much to carry. When my ex deployed, so did two of his friends that also lived with us. So the robbers had a stash of four TVs, two Xboxes, and a Wii. Along with all the games. It was found in the empty house next to mine, so we got all the stuff back. When I got home from Florida, I called the police to come do a search of my house. The state of my house was heartbreaking. Everything was destroyed. There was dirt all through the carpet from their shoes. They had broken in through a back bedroom window, so it was smashed out. That's what tripped the alarm. I had glass break detectors. My bed, mattress, box spring, and blankets were thrown all over my room. The couches in the living room were ripped and flipped over. There were some broken dishes and my kitchen looked like the kitchen in the movie Jumanji when the monkeys are through with it. The police did the searching and dusted everywhere for prints. When they left, I had this mess all over the house and now the black dust from the fingerprinting all over my walls. There was also a single 9mm bullet left sitting on the counter. Even though I wasn't there when it happened, I was terrified. I felt so violated, and they were never caught. Although, a few months after the robbery, the little old lady that lived on the corner had come over to my house and told me and my friend that she saw the whole thing happen. It was the neighbors, directly across from the cul-de-sac. Their house, although separated from mine by the main street, faced directly towards mine. They were likely watching me and my friend every day and every night to get a sense of our habits. While I was gone in Florida, they took notice. When my friend would leave every night to stay with her boyfriend, they took notice. All these years later, if I leave my house with my kids and my husband and no one is home, I still get paranoid that someone has gotten into my house while I was gone. So I grab my own 9mm pistol and search all the closets and places someone could hide. I don't even live in North Carolina anymore. So to the psychos in the house across from mine, let's not meet. Sometime in the early 90s, Tucked in the corner of Slumville, USA, stood a 100,000-square-foot factory 
Facing due north in the dead center of the squarish building was a thousand square foot office. Darkly tinted glass enclosed an office of sleek decor. Sci-fi-esque metallic grays and blacks. Two desks. Two multi-line cordless phones. Three filing cabinets. Shelving. Three rows high. Each stretching the length of the four glass walls. All made with darkly tinted glass. Even the round door handle sparkled with a crystal-like, finely etched paisley pattern. Inside the darkly tinted enclosure was a man and a woman. Forever the Zeke and Sage story brought to you by Fiction for Adults. Sage Moreau sat in a black leather chair, while Zeke Chase sat relaxed. His posture slumped comfortably within the luxury chair's bosom. He clasped his hands across his narrow midsection. You'll start right away then. I beg your pardon? Right, right. I need to interview you. Was this the same man she had read about in the Los Angeles Times? The same man that the city awarded Entrepreneur of the Year? The man was supposed to be a genius. No, really. An in-the-flesh, authentic, contemporary Einstein. Black slacks, a Fields of Nephilim concert tee, and black cowboy ankle boots. Not what she expected. Which was fine. She rather enjoyed when people surprised her, which happened much too infrequently. And him being a fan of Fields of Nephilim? Well, that was just the frosting. She straightened and smiled. Yes, Mr. Chase, you should interview me before offering me the job. Indeed. This is the part where you ask me questions. Zeke mimicked her posture, rolling his office chair closer, one leather boot at a time. Heel, toe, heel, toe. He stopped before her and leaned forward, his crossed arms planted on his thighs. What kind of questions should I ask? Have you never interviewed someone before? Of course I have. Well, what kind of questions do you usually ask? We could start there. Right, right. Okay, first question. Yes, Mr. Chase. What would you like to ask me? When can you start? Brought to you by Fiction for Adults. In early 2014, my best friend Lily met a guy named Nathan at a club through one of her friends from college. 
She and Nathan instantly hit it off and were officially dating within a few weeks. It only took a few months for Lily to fall head over heels for this guy. Before long, she was even telling me that she thought he was the one. I was happy for her experiencing some good old college romance. It even eventually led to her losing her virginity to this guy. I really had no opinions on the guy aside from what I heard from Lily. From what I heard at first, he sounded like a nice guy who just had a lot of bad stuff happen to him. This guy had some serious baggage. He had a poor background and lived with his grandmother. I can't imagine if he ever told Lily about his parents or not. He had a three-year-old son named Isaac, whose mother was a drug addict. Lily was in love with Nathan so much that she was willing to stick with him and help him with some of the drama. In spite of hearing so much about him, I only met him twice. Once when he was picking Lily up from work, we work at the same place, and second when, well, I'll get to that. However, things first went downhill when Nathan broke up with Lily in September. He had recently become a rookie police officer and was moving to another city for more training. He said he would come back for her. Still, Lily was devastated by this. But unexpectedly, he was back in town within a month. This whole episode felt off to me. Lily and Nathan tried to start things up again, and things were starting to look up for the couple. That is, until Christmas rolled around. In something straight out of a soap opera, Lily broke up with Nathan on Christmas after finding out some damning information about him. After he broke up with Lily in September, he apparently went and slept with one of his cousins and got her pregnant. His cousin later had a miscarriage. And to add to that, Nathan revealed that he had both chlamydia and genital herpes. He knew he had these and yet purposefully didn't tell Lily in order to have lots of unprotected sex with her. Lily got herself tested. While she didn't contract chlamydia, she tested positive for genital herpes. As suspected, she was devastated by this and went through a brief period of depression. It quickly became apparent that Nathan was not all the type of person Lily had first thought him to be. He was a sexist, a womanizer, a cheat, and a liar. He had sex with multiple women, and just like Lily, he kept the information about his STDs a secret. He even tried to turn all of his friends against Lily, saying that she broke up with him and even tried to drive apart Lily and Yasmina, the fiancé of one of Nathan's cousins, who was now close friends with Lily. Lily did not stand for this and made sure the truth was known. She talked to Yasmina and her fiancé about it and they eventually kicked Nathan out of their place. Word began spreading in Nathan's community about his wrongdoings and even his backup girlfriend broke up with him. It wasn't long before Lily was taking self-defense and gun classes. Nathan knew where she lived and obviously had some weapons training due to being a rookie police officer, a job he soon lost. She often told me about how she was somewhat afraid of him, but mostly she was furious. If he had ever tried to hurt her, I'm sure she would have blown his brains out. 
Anyway, my second and final encounter with Nathan was at the tail end of this drama earlier this year. My first encounter with Nathan had been brief, but afterwards Lily had told me that Nathan had been initially jealous of me, due to the fact that I was a close guy friend of Lily's. We've been friends since we were toddlers, and that we had dated back during freshman year of high school. While our first encounter had been brief and under friendly terms, our second encounter was far from that. I had the morning shift at work that day and had just ended my shift. It was early in the afternoon, so I was hurrying to my car to get out of the heat. As I walked to my car, I noticed Nathan leaning against his car a few rows away. As you can expect, I was furious upon seeing him, given all the crap he had caused my friend. I assumed that he was waiting for Lily or something. I only chuckled because Lily was on a family vacation in Montana at the time. I decided not to confront him. I was always keen on listening to Lily and giving my two cents, but for the most part, I had been successful at staying away from this drama. Suddenly, Nathan turned in my direction and immediately stood up completely. He tapped on his car and, who I assumed was a friend of his, stepped out. They began to power walk in my direction. Wasting no time, I jumped in my car, started the ignition, and pulled out of my parking spot. As I did, I heard a loud knock on the back of my car. I looked up in the rearview mirror to see Nathan punching in the back window in some feeble attempt to stop me. I kept going. I was almost out of the parking lot when I looked in my rearview mirror again to see his car speeding in my direction. I sped out of the parking lot with him on my tail. He continued to follow me for several streets. There was no way I was heading home with him following, so I ended up taking the craziest detour of my life. Pulling on and off feeders, driving through parking lots, driving circles in neighborhoods, I did it all. Eventually, after about 20 minutes of driving, I lost him. I drove around for a little while afterwards in order to make sure I had officially lost him. When I got home, I called Lily and told her everything. She thought about calling the police, but before we could decide on whether or not to do that, Lily got a call from Yasmina, who had been spying on Nathan for Lily for quite some time. We learned that Nathan had apparently packed up his stuff from where he was living and took off. He was gone. To where, I don't know. I heard rumors about him wanting to go to New York City and Mexico, but those are the only possibilities I remember. All that matters is that now he's officially out of Lily's life. I'm not sure what would have happened if he had caught me that day. Lily guessed that Nathan might have been trying to hurt me in order to get back to her. I'm glad that I was a good enough driver to lose him. Otherwise, I don't want to think about what he could have done to me. So, Nathan, I hope Lily and I never meet you again. We moved a lot when I was a kid, 
but through high school I always used the same bus stop. It was about half a block away where our quiet suburban street intersected with a slightly busier one. I was often there alone, early in the morning. For the longest time, the most interesting thing that might happen was a raven scolding me from a tree, or that a family of deer would follow me from the park across the street from my house to the bus stop through the fog, and pass me to walk to the forest preserve beyond the intersection. It was a quiet neighborhood, and only a handful of cars might pass by while I was waiting for the bus. The deer stopped following me after the harassment began. That morning, a jeep suddenly hit the brakes and slowed way down to a stop in front of me. The driver had all the windows rolled down, even though it was a chilly, wet autumn morning. One of those days where the mist just clings to and saturates everything, and the clouds are so low in the sky that you feel like the world is just a big room that you're in. Because of the fog, they hadn't seen me until they were a few meters away and their braking made a screeching sound. They stopped the car and the driver just sat there, staring straight ahead. I couldn't make them out. They were wearing a light gray hooded sweatshirt and sunglasses. I didn't see anyone else in the car. After about 30 tense seconds, during which my bemusement gave way to concern that someone was going to hit this guy stopped in the road, he finally turned to me yelled a racial slur, smiled, and took off. I didn't think much of it at the time. I was newish to the area. I'm not great with faces, and I figured it was one of the kids at the high school trying to be edgy. Or maybe just a local jerk who had mistaken my ethnic background. Either way, I didn't think about it all until the next week when it happened again. This time, the guy had friends with him. The windows were tinted and they only cracked them, so I couldn't see them. He yelled a different slur at me, and I could hear their laughter as they drove off. This continued to happen, sometimes twice in a week, sometimes going months in between. They sounded young, so I continued to write it off as another weird local hazing ritual, but gradually it began to get under my skin. There were two things that bothered me about it. First, the slurs. They were ugly and hateful, and they sounded promisingly violent to me, even though I felt they could tell I wasn't a Mexican or an Asian person or any of the other groups they used slurs for. Second, their license plate was obscured. Every time. This is a very wealthy area I'm describing, and the local law enforcement wouldn't call out anyone who lived there on a violation so I wasn't surprised that they got away with it, but it did give me pause. One morning I was ready to yell back at them, but instead of yelling anything, they just swerved at my location on the sidewalk. I jumped out of the way and ran behind a fence, but the jeep ended up whipping down through where I had been standing before speeding off. I figured the kid had overshot and hadn't actually meant to hurt me, but some of the things that followed have since made me wonder. One morning, I came up to the bus stop and there was just blood all over the area where I usually stood. It was wet for the rain, but otherwise congealing, turning dark in places, but I knew what it was. It wasn't a huge amount, but it was off-putting. 
A few days later, there was a dead animal there, mangled and brutalized. It wasn't roadkill. I couldn't take my eyes off of it, even after getting on the bus. It wasn't there when I returned in the afternoon. It wasn't an accident, I feel certain. It looked to me as though it had been stabbed repeatedly. Extreme overkill. I started to see the jeep outside the morning bus stop, but the windows were never down now, and it always sped off when I looked at it, or I otherwise couldn't get to it before it left. This carried on for years. One day in the summer, I was walking through my neighborhood with a friend, and the jeep came by at a very high speed, and an egg hit me on the chest. It flowed down my shirt and onto my pants, and all I could think to do was to turn to my friend James and say, You saw that, right? Because until then, nobody else had ever witnessed the events, and my family members seemed skeptical when I mentioned it. I had to go home and change my clothes and take a shower, since the egg hit me at such a high speed that it went into my hair and everywhere. It was then that I started to take the situation more seriously. I had a bruise for weeks. I started to catch a ride with my brother in the mornings, or wait behind the local NFL player's fence until I heard the bus coming down the street. I didn't ever go outside until I had text confirmation that my ride was there. If I heard a car coming on a walk, I would run off into the bushes. They swerved at me a few more times and then I never saw them again. Some other strange things happened and I've had stalkers since, but I've never been able to connect them to these events, nor figure out who the people in the Jeep were, or where they lived. My parents have moved to a different part of the community now, but I'm still jumpy when I walk around in that area. So creepy Jeep Psycho, whoever you are, let's never meet. Thank you guys so much for listening. Don't forget to follow us over on Instagram at Nightmare Society Radio. Don't forget to follow us also on YouTube and check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash Nightmare Society. Hope you all have a great rest of the week and until next time. Sweet dreams.